0: that there was far too many images of me dancing in that video. (laughs) I will be having words with the videographer later. The reason we wanted to show you that video, that's a recap of uh, three weeks of VBS that we've done as a church this summer. One here at this campus, our very first at this campus, uh, with our kids celebrating the story of God and getting to hear the story of God for the first time. Uh, But you'll notice in there, there was a scene where the kids were pouring money in the bucket. And all summer, as a church family, as a whole church family, We have been kind of taking part of this mission to raise funds for Cure International in Zambia uh, to help them build a new facility, new hospital uh, where kids and families can get much needed medical care. Uh, Across our three VBSs, our kids raised over $12,000. Incredible effort from them. And they really, they really led the way for our entire church family. Our goal was to raise $150,000 to get this done. Uh, to date, we've raised over $220,000 in our church family. And that, that is a wonderful thing to celebrate. And I want to I thank you as a church family for, for living out the generosity of Christ and helping us do that. We couldn't do that without the generosity of God's people investing in this. But I also want to say, uh, though we have reached and exceeded our goal, it's not time for us to pull back. We've still got more time to jump in on this, and part of the heart of this is not simply to raise money for a single goal. But to let God work in all of our hearts that we would become a more generous people. So, whether you can give a lot or whether you can give a little, just like these kids that give pennies and dollars, I invite you to ask God how you might be a part of the work that He's doing and how you can grow in generosity, because it really is something deeply valuable to us as followers of Jesus to always be growing in our generosity, no matter what that looks like. So I just wanna pray that God would do that, that he would continue to, uh, to bring in more funds, that we could bless Cure International, but also that he would work in our hearts as a church to continue to make us more generous. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have invited us to take part in your work in the world. We thank you for the opportunity to serve Cure International and the amazing work that you are doing there through the doctors and the staff. And God, we pray that even though we have reached a numerical goal, our hearts would not grow cold towards the generosity that you call us to. That, Father, we would not use that number as a a tick to say we've done it, but, God, that we would rejoice in seeing even more generosity yet, that we would become like your son, who gave not just a little, but everything he had for his people. Lord, may we live in his shadow, and may we look like him. We pray in his name, Amen. amen. Well, I'm, uh, I'm also glad to be preaching in, in wet shirts. I always consider after baptisms, it's like a badge of honor to be preaching with that. It's amazing and, and certainly special to baptize Jonathan. But we wanna turn now to the book of Proverbs. As a church family, we've been traveling through this book, kind of examining the way of wisdom. Uh, now, when I first moved to America, uh, one of the things that struck me about moving here was the temptations that I had to face when I came here. Let me explain what I mean. In England, my nickname was Skeletor, okay? That's because I looked like a skeleton. Uh, my, my sister was actually so worried about my frailty, she used to take me exercising with her boyfriend and the way that she would set that up, she would tend to her boyfriend and say, hey, we need to walk the dog, meaning me, because <laughs> we needed to beef him up, okay? Now, when I moved to America, everything changed because America has a limitless supply of fast food chains. It has unbelievable desserts and foods, and even where I moved in Texas, the food portions were outrageous. Like if you took just one slice of beef in a, in a Texas restaurant, they'd look at you like you've done something wrong. So you, you are immersed in this culture where there's so much food. And then I moved to Geneva, Illinois, where Grams 318 is. Has anybody gone to Grams 318 and seen those donuts? Right? They should have them covered until you're ready to buy them, okay? Because maybe I don't want to get that donut, but every time I see it, I'm going to get it because it tempts me, right? Now, if only temptation was as silly and as innocuous as things like donuts or food portions, the truth is temptation is something that we all live with and need to navigate. And the truth is also that it's not innocuous. It is something that can be dangerous and deadly. It can unravel our lives. And so God, in his love and his mercy, wants to give us wisdom to navigate the struggle of temptation. God wants to help us walk through that. And in the book of Proverbs, we see a great deal of wisdom about how to navigate through temptation. There's not a soul in here who hasn't felt the struggle in one way, small or large, to in some way sin against God and against your neighbor. You have been tempted to be bitter, to lie, to ignore, to cheat, to be angry, to gossip, to indulge, to be selfish, to be judgmental. All of us are dealing with this. It's an ongoing experience. And what the book of Proverbs does is it tells us a story that helps us understand what temptation is, how it works, and how we can escape from it. And it all takes place in chapter 7 of Proverbs where Solomon, the author of Proverbs, is going to tell us the story of a young man who gets himself into a bad situation. And what Solomon's doing is he's setting on this story very similar to parables that Jesus tells in the New Testament. He's giving us a picture so that we can look at that picture and see ourselves in that picture and understand what does God's wisdom give us to change the story of temptation in our life. Now this story is set up as a young man who is seduced by a woman And so really it's kind of geared around this idea of sexual temptation, but I don't want us to get stuck in thinking that that's all this story is about. What Solomon's doing is he's using that specific temptation as an archetype or as a picture of all temptation in our lives because it all functions the same way. And so what the challenge is for us this morning is as we go through chapter seven is to ask ourselves this question, what are we most tempted by? What are the sins in our life that have this tempting hold on us? And how can we put them into this story? How can we see ourselves in this story? We want to identify the areas where we are tempted and learn how to navigate our struggles by seeing the context, the content, and the consequences of temptation. So let me tell you first about the context of temptation. Now, another thing about me when I lived in England is I I strove to be in the popular crowd, and the, the place that I landed in high school to try and get in the popular crowd was with a bunch of skaters, okay, skateboarders. Now, uh, I could not skateboard to save my life, but they could. So if I just hung out with them long enough and stood with a skateboard in my hand, maybe I would be buying. But there was this one occasion, we were, we were downtown in my hometown, Hartlepool, uh, and they, were, they loved to kind of take videos of themselves doing tricks on their skateboard, so we're hanging out. And one of my friends, Anthony Cook, a guy that we all called Cookie, He had this brilliant idea that he was going to climb on top of a bus depot roof and drop down, uh, and and it would just be this amazing uh, scene of him coming down on a skateboard landing, and everybody would clap and cheer. I knew as soon as he suggested it, that's not going to end well if you do that. The roof was probably about 20 feet off the ground, and they, uh, the, the more I said, I don't know, this seems, this seems like a bad idea, they, the more they were insisting, oh, I look amazed. And no, you can do a cookie, you can do it. So sure enough, he gets boosted up on top of the bus depot. After about two minutes of kind of wagging himself up, he skates forward, drops down. I won't tell you what happened to his ankles, but it was not pretty. He had to spend the rest of the summer in one full leg cast and then one around his ankle. It ended really badly, and the whole time I was like, I could look at that picture, I looked at the scene of him on the depot, and I knew this is not going to end well. I can see where this is all going. Sometimes we need a little perspective outside of ourselves to understand that the situations we're in are not heading where we think they are. And that really is the story of temptation, isn't it? Is that sometimes we are so captured by something that looks beautiful to us, that looks worthy to us, and yet God says, I have a perspective that you don't, and I can see that this is not going to end well. That's the context of this story that we're told in chapter seven. This is Proverbs seven, verses one through 10. Solomon says, "'My son, keep my words "'and treasure up my commandments with you. "'Keep my commandments and live. "'Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. "'Bind them on your fingers. "'Write them on the tablet of your heart. "'Say to wisdom, you are my sister, "'and call insight your intimate friend "'to keep you from the forbidden woman, "'from the adulteress with her smooth words.'" For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. Now, does that sound like a scene that's going to end well? A young man traveling down a dark street, even as Solomon says, I want you to think about wisdom, I want you to think about what it means to navigate life well, let me tell you the story of a young man walking at night towards the home of a forbidden woman. Doesn't sound like it's gonna end well. And there are two things that I wanna highlight about the context of this young man's temptation that I think we can all apply to every temptation we face. And those two things are our heart and our enemy. Our enemy. Our heart and our enemy. Alistair Berg, one of my favorite pastors, says that disaster happens at the intersection of desire and opportunity. Our heart is our desire and opportunity is our enemy. Those two things come together and disaster happens when those two things meet. That's what's happening for this young man. So let's talk about that first truth, our heart. See, our own heart works against us. It's an important truth that we all need to learn. We're told it time and time again in the scriptures. In Jeremiah 17:9, one of the most important scriptures you could ever memorize says this: "The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah saying is that our heart loves things that it's not always good. it's twisted, it's easily corrupted, it's easily manipulated. And then in the New Testament, James says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14, but each of us is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation always begins in our own heart. The Bible is very clear about that and it says that our primary problem is the condition of our own heart, that it's malfunctioning that it does not love what is most beneficial for it. We could look at this story about this young man and say, well, he's being set up. This, this woman is, is tempting him. She's coming to him. And for sure, that's going to be a part of the story that's important. But the story begins with who? The young man lacking sense. When, what time of day is he walking through the street? Night, darkness, isolation. It's a picture that this man is where he should not be. Now, we could say that this young man is not actively seeking to be tempted. He's not going out of his way to kind of make sure that it doesn't happen. He's not chasing it, though. And yet, still, he's putting himself in danger. It's not enough that we simply don't sin. We must consider the places where we are putting ourselves that are tempting us to sin. Where are we walking in night and darkness? Where are we placing ourselves in danger? He lacks sense because he doesn't know himself. We can all see clearly from the first few verses of the story, we know where it's going, and he can't. And so my encouragement for you, God's word's encouragement for you is to learn to know yourself, to accept that your heart is not interested in what is best for you. It is easily manipulated. Your temptation begins with your own desire. We need to be journaling, we need to be inviting accountability into our life, we need to be asking the question, where are we prone to sin, and where can we set safeguards in place? Now at this point, we might be prone to say, well, so are we supposed to live in a padded room to escape temptation, and the the truth is, obviously, no, we can't do that. But we can be thoughtful about what is unique to our own hearts and our own lives that we know we're going to be tempted by. We might say, well, isn't it legalistic to be be living by rules, to to stop ourselves from doing stuff? Legalism would would be if we told everybody else that they have to live by our rules. But actually, holiness is saying, I know my own heart, I know what's happening to me, and I'm going to be wise about where I put myself. But that's only the start of the story. There is also a crisis because it's not just this young man's heart that it's his problem, it's his enemy. There is an enemy that is seeking to devour him. It's what we're told in the letter of First Peter in the New Testament. Jesus' says, dear friend says in First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's not just our own hearts. It's not just desire, but as Alistair Begg said, it's the intersection of desire with opportunity, and our enemy knows how to create a good opportunity to tempt us. He watches us and stalks us, He is a fierce and dangerous enemy. Sometimes we kind of see him as this cartoonish villain, silly and ridiculous, but the truth is he is a deadly predator that hunts us. My son Jonathan loves to watch these videos of different animals, and he reads these books about different predators, and and lately we've kind of gotten into watching these videos of uh, snake feedings because we're weird people. (laughs) But whatever happens, if you've ever watched the feeding of a snake, what happens is they'll drop a, a, a mouse in, the snake does not immediately go for it. It watches it. And it's so, it's so intimidating because sometimes these videos are 20 minutes long and the, the kill only happens at the end. There's minutes and minutes and minutes, extended periods where the snake watches and stalks this animal as it runs around. It lets it have freedom. It lets it go around in different places knowing that eventually it's going to get him. You know, your enemy is described as a serpent in the scriptures for a reason. Because he's watching you. He is stalking you. He is preparing to create opportunities that your heart will be led to be manipulated by and deceived by so that he can pull you into his snare. We must be watchful in our own hearts and we must be watchful and sober-minded about our enemy who is watching us. There's a story in the scriptures where we see the long game of Satan play out in the life of someone, in the life of someone called King David. In the Old Testament, King David is seen as this righteous, good king, but then there's there's a moment in his life where everything goes wrong. We're told at the beginning of a story that David was supposed to be with his men at war, fighting in a battle, and he wasn't. He was at home. He stayed away from where he should be, and he stayed where he shouldn't be. And more than that, he got himself up on a roof and he looked out over the kingdom and he saw a young woman bathing on the roof, going through a religious ritual. And after one step and another step and another step, David eventually calls that woman in and sleeps with her, committing adultery. It's a terrible story, but it's a great picture of how our enemy works because it doesn't come all at once. It's not just one split decision. It is a step-by-step moving towards this enemy who is sculpting an opportunity to tempt you. There's many occasions where we can see if we are watching, my enemy is seeking me and I need to stop. I need to be thoughtful. I need to turn around and change direction. Our enemy wants to ruin our marriages. He wants to ruin our children's lives. He wants to ruin our witness. And most of all, he wants to ruin our joy in the father that loves us. And we must not give him an opportunity to do so. What are the things that tempt you? Where, are your, where is your own heart prone to be deceived? And where would the enemy in your life be watching? Where is his eyes on you? Learn to know yourself and learn to know his tactics so that you can walk in the way of wisdom and understand the context of temptation. It is so important to understand the context of temptation if we are to navigate it well. Second thing that Proverbs 7 gives us is it tells us about the content of temptation. The content of temptation. Now, I've said many times in sermons I am a marketer's dream come true because I will buy into anything if you give me a really good pitch. And these days, the internet is so good at gathering information on us, it's frightening how well they can sculpt the perfect ad for you. I actually watched a documentary a, a couple of years ago now called The Social Dilemma. Has anybody watched this documentary on Netflix? It's really, really frightening how often when you travel around the internet and you click on things, there are companies that are tracking everything that you click on, tracking even how long you hover over certain things so that they can sculpt and create this perfect pitch to you to buy something. And if you... I am unfortunately plagued by uh, hair loss medication. (laughs) I... I'm concerned by that because I'm not, maybe they're looking at the pictures or something, but that is freakishly good at targeting me. Now, the content of temptation is important because our enemy wants to create the perfect opportunity, the perfect lies that will deceive us and manipulate us. This is what happens in this story. In Proverbs 7, we're told, starting in verse 10, behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute while he of heart, and she's going to create this terrible opportunity where she tells him, Several lies, three in specific. We're told she's loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies and wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. This woman exploits this man's lack of sense by telling him three lies. The first one is this, that you are promised good. Temptation will always begin by promising you good. It promises you good. She says to him, come let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us dis- delight ourselves with love. She's not offering him something that is detestable or ugly. She's offering something that is desirable. It's promising good. Do you remember way back at the beginning of the story of God, the serpent comes and he doesn't allure them with a lie about something ugly and overtly horrible. He allures them with something that we're told was pleasing to the eye and good to be desired for eating. John Piper says this, the power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. No one sins out of a sense of duty What sins have beset you and what happiness have they promised you? Behind every temptation you face is a lie about finding some form of happiness, some form of joy. Your enemy knows what your heart desires, what it longs for. This woman, interestingly enough, she says, I've paid my vows, I've made my sacrifices. She almost has this sense where she says, look, I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now it's time for me to get what's good. And she's whispering this into the ears of this young man who may have also likewise done the same, alluring him by saying, you've done what's right. Now it's time for you to enjoy something good. You've worked hard. You've paid your vows. God will give you liberty after what you've done for him. But I heard our pastoral resident, Blake Lawson, who preached an incredible sermon on this same chapter. He said this. He said, if grace permitted the things that hurt us, it wouldn't be grace. If God's love allowed you to indulge in things that would harm you, it wouldn't be love. And so even though temptation promises something good, we have to believe that God has something better and that what God says no to, he says only out of great love for us, out of a perspective that he has that we don't. We must remember that God is good, that we're told in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. It doesn't say seek God and give up all joy. It says no, actually seek first the kingdom and then all the joy that you're seeking will be found in him and in his kingdom. We're reminded of this in Psalm 16 as well when we're told that in his right hand is fullness of joy. See, the God that we serve, we don't serve him our of sense of duty, we serve because we have found in him a greater joy than we've found anywhere else. That what God offers us is more beautiful, more good. Do you believe that God is committed not to cheap and shallow joy, but to everlasting joy? That God desires good for you more than you desire good for you. Second lie that we're told is that temptation denies consequence. It says nothing will happen. Nothing bad will happen. No one will ever know. All sin has consequences, unfortunately. It is a lie when we are tempted by saying that no one will know. Let me ask you this question, what would you do if no one would ever know? What would you be tempted to fall into? Father does not desire the consequences of sin for us because he understands them in such a profound way that we do not. See, what the Father knows is that if you give in to temptation, if you sin, there are real consequences that harm you. He knows that shortly after temptation will follow accusation. That the same one who has tempted you and allured you will moments later change and say, now you can never be forgiven. Look at what you have done. Heaps guilt and shame upon us. No sin goes without that. Many of us live in the guilt and the shame and carry the weight of other sins that we have committed. And this in turn only compounds temptation. So another consequence of temptation is not just the guilt and the shame that follow, but that it pulls us into an ever deeper hole in which we are more and more tempted to try and hide our shame and guilt by indulging in something else. David attempted to cover up his sin with Bathsheba by doing more and more, committing more and more sin. He killed Bathsheba's husband. He tried to put it down in the dark. The more that he tried to avoid his guilt and his shame, the more he was tempted and the deeper he traveled. Jonathan Edwards says the sin turns the heart into a fire. And just as there has never been a fire that said, Enough fuel, I'm fine now, so there has never been a sinful heart that said, I've had enough promises freedom but it creates chains. Let me ask, would God be loving if he allowed us to live in our chains? The last lie is that temptation means that you are more important than others. It elevates self above others. Temptation elevates self above others. This woman, she says, I came to seek you. I've been looking for you. It's you I want. I found you. She speaks to this young man's vanity. See, sin's impact is never isolated. And though we might tell ourselves it's okay because this is not hurting anybody else, it doesn't hurt anybody else, and so it's okay for me to do this. The truth is, there is nothing that God has prohibited that doesn't have consequences for others. The man who cheats on his wife, the parent who is harsh with his children, the friend who gossips, All of these things, though we are convinced by temptation they won't hurt any others, can cause tremendous pain. Be wary of anything that sets your personal happiness as the highest priority, despite what we value in our culture right now, of thinking about our own truth and our own lives and what's most important to us. Your needs are not more important than your spouse's, they're not more important than your children, they're not more important than your community. We cannot live isolated from one another. But we need to consider how our lives impact one another. Jesus calls us to self denial, and we might feel as though that life may not be as joyful as the one that we could make for ourselves, but the truth is, denying ourselves doesn't end up in us losing ourselves, it ends up in us finding ourselves. God asks us to deny ourselves because, out of His great love for us, He wants us to find something better. Remember that malfunctioning heart that we talked about. We've got to deny ourselves because we need to trust a better voice than our own. As Proverbs tells us, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. And that's how I want to close here and just in the last few minutes talk about the consequences of temptation. Story ends this way. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With a smooth talk, she compels him All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And Solomon turns back to us and says, Now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The end of the story of temptation for this young man is destruction. Eliron, you read a section in verses 16 and 17 where she, the woman is telling him about how she's prepared her bed. She says, I've, I've laid it with certain linens. I've put aloe on it. I've put myrrh on it and cinnamon. And that's meant to be kind of a picture of seduction and and kind of creating this alluring atmosphere, but it also means something else. You see, all of those spices that she mentioned, if you were reading this in ancient times, you would have known that every one of those spices are the specific spices used to embalm dead bodies. This young woman is not bringing him in to bring him joy. She's bringing him to bury him. To take his life. This scene fades to black and we ask ourselves, is there any hope for this man? Is there any hope for this one who's been ensnared and pulled in by temptation? And perhaps you find yourself here this morning wondering if there is any hope for you in your struggle with temptation. Perhaps you feel just like him at the end of this scene with it fading to black and wondering, is there anyone who will rescue him? And friends, my joy to say this morning is, yes, there is. There is hope for this young man. And it starts when we hear the words of Solomon saying to his sons, listen to me, be attentive to the words of my mouth, let not your heart turn aside to her ways, don't stray to her path. That's the voice of a father calling to a son, saying, I have hope for you. Listen to me. If we go back to those first five verses, Proverbs 7, 1 through 5, just quickly seeing, he says, My son, keep my words, treasure my commands, keep my commandments and leave, keep them as the apple of your eye. This is a father calling to a son, saying, I have the way of escape for you. Listen to me, trust me, know me. Our hope in our struggle with temptation, if there is if there is one who has supplied us with the means to escape it. First Corinthians 10.13, the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The famous reformer Martin Luther once said, You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. The idea here is that God has given us the means in his word and in his commandments to avoid temptation, to overcome temptation. He's not left us alone. So the first thing that you can do to find the way of escape is to throw yourself into the word of God. To throw yourself into the wisdom of scripture. We're told in Psalm one nineteen nine through 11 how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then in Galatians 5.16, we're told, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See, God's wisdom exposes the lies that we are told in temptation. It teaches us how to recognize it, how to understand it, and how to walk away from it when we understand God's will and his purpose in our life that he desires good for us, and that he understands our own heart better than we do, then we are free to change direction because the one, there is one who is leading us to a better place. Second thing that we need to do is to make ourselves accountable. This young man's mistake was that he was traveling on a dark street all by himself. The worst thing that you can do in your temptation is to live in isolation and to stay in the dark. The enemy would have you believe that it is dangerous to live in the light. For other people to see inside your heart and your struggles, and I promise you, as one whose life has been full of so many different broken, dark, sinful moments, the kindest thing that God did for me was to teach me to talk to others and to let them into my life to give me a church family like you, that I can share my burdens and my struggles. That's why we have rooted groups and life groups and men's groups and women's groups is because we know that God has called us to live in the community, to be accountable to one another, to carry one another. We're told again in James, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. God wants us to call in help, to get insight from others. But, Changing our behavior alone will not save us from temptation because many of you have tried that. Many of you have faced temptations of various kinds and said, I want to stop, I'm going to change, I'm going to do new things today. I'm going to make sure that I don't go here and I'm going to do all of these things. And yet, you find yourself stuck in a cycle of repeating and repeating and repeating. And you sit here listening to a sermon about temptation, you say, That's all well and good, but I know what it feels like to have failed. And I feel chained by my temptations and my struggles. So what you need is not just a new set of behaviors, it's a new heart. And friends, you can get that too. You can get that too by seeing the one who has faced temptation for you. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. I told someone earlier this week if I had that I was going into the fight of my life against a 300 pound professional boxer, you know who I would want to talk to fast? You know who I want to spend time with fast? The one that's beaten him already. And who is that? Who is the one that has stead straight into the monster of temptation and has defeated it? It's Christ one who was tempted in every way like we are and yet was without sin. He is our champion. We can't look to ourselves to rescue from temptation. We must look to him. He's the only one who's done it. He's the only one who's faced it. And he wants to nourish us and strengthen us. And the other joy that we have is knowing that God is not one who sits in the heavens looking down in all of our struggles and telling us, okay, do this, do this.